0: Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. The Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making disciples and baptizing more than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, What you have said is true. Woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. He who is called Christ? When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Father, we thank you for the great good news that is your word. We thank you for uh, the fact that you point us consistently to it. We thank you that you want us to know you, just as Jesus wanted the women to know him. And we pray for Brandon as he brings the word today, God, that you would give him clarity, give him focus. God, and we ask you to turn over the hard soil of our hearts that we would receive the seed of your word and grow in your truth, God. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. You guys can grab a seat. As you look at the text that Lisa just read for us today, we're going to take it in two parts. It's a lot here for us to to look at. If you want to, you can look in on John chapter 4. We'll kind of be put in and out of there through the rest of the day. This is an incredible text uh, that has a lot for us to learn. But before we get there, I I want to ask you if you who have here um, spent a good amount of time in their life before they came to Christ. Show of hands if you're not afraid of that, right? That was my story, yes. Okay. How many of you have ever had someone that you believed, and you don't have to show your hands here, believe that there is no way that they're ever going to come to faith? You believe that there's really like, it's like they're just too far gone. Like it seems like their heart is just too hard. It's just not going to happen. I feel like many of us unintentionally can believe that about people. I know in my family, I had thought that, and I prayed forever, and my parents came to faith a little over 10 years ago, and that was absolutely phenomenal. But it's, it's amazing how quick we can forget just what God has done in our lives individually. The, the grace that he's shown us, the, the faith that he has given us, the life that he has given to us, it's amazing how quickly we can lose sight of just how far God went for us. And we instantly refuse to see it in someone else. In fact, I will confess, I... Over the last eight months, I have found myself getting kind of frustrated with people, finding myself really kind of being careful to not let my heart be hardened but by the fact that I can't believe I'm almost appalled or, or, or disgusted by the things that Christians are doing and people that are unbelievers are doing. And I found myself appalled by the behavior. I find myself kind of wanting to avoid certain people. I don't know if this is something for you, not like people groups, but just when I see something in them, it's like they're just too far gone. There's no way. I must... And I, I justify the actions of like, I must work with someone that's that's a little less harsh because they're more likely to come to faith as if Jesus can't do something in the heart of this hardened person. Have you ever believed that someone didn't deserve the gospel? No, I, I get it. Everyone of us would say, well, of course, everyone deserves the gospel, but have you ever treated people as differently? Let me push on this a little bit. Have you ever, you know, thought about one political party, so there's no way that they can know Jesus. Or maybe it's a specific people group, or a race, or socioeconomic class, where you haven't willfully gone against them, but you've done everything you can to to go around them, to not be in front of them, to not be around them. Kind of like Jonah, in a way. Like Jonah, not the people of Nineveh, no way. We all have people like that. We all have these individuals or these these people groups or these people that we just believe that they're just too hard, they're too far gone, and God can't do anything in their life. It's true for all of us. This text, this story is is profound. If you remember kind of coming up to this, the gospel, John, he he shares no, like he hides no fact of what he's trying to do. He's trying to show us that God, that Jesus is God and that Jesus is fully man and that life comes only through him. Eternal life comes only through Jesus. He doesn't hold any punches. He doesn't do anything. As we come up to this section, he has this long kind of conversation with Nicodemus who kind of represents the religious culture in that day. I don't think it's a mistake that the next long discord, long conversation he has is with a woman that represents those who would be seen unclean or sinners of the day. In between there, we see that there's this conversation that's happening where the Pharisees are, are seeing that, that Jesus is gaining a crowd. And so Jesus has to go through Samaria. He chooses to leave and go through Samaria to come to this, this well. And many people say, like, is it because he was fearful? I don't think he was fearful. I think there could be something to be said about John the Baptist's work being kind of diminished because of how fast Jesus was going. But either way, Jesus, I believe, had a divine appointment with a woman in Samaria. A little bit of geography. Everything from Jerusalem is down but coming out of this area of Samaria, this is where Philip in Acts chapter 8 sent Peter and John to, to bring the Spirit. So the, the author, John here, he, he spent time at this well with this woman, but then he also gets to go back years later. And I always wonder, like, does he, does he meet the same people? Does he get to talk to the same people? Like, does he have a conversation with the woman at the well and say, do you remember that day? But this area, this, this on his way to Galilee as he's leaving, you kind of had multiple ways, but the, the shortest distance was through this land of Samaria, kind of to, to end here. There was a, another way that would kind of run through Gentile area and kind of the Jordan Valley in a different direction. It was a little bit longer path, but it put Jews in a really difficult spot because even though geography is there, it's about a three-day journey we learned from Josephus. But Jews that, that really wanted to stay pure, which I think, again, is brilliant, inspired by the Spirit, John, writes this after Jesus took the purification jars and turned them into wine. He overturns the purification temple and says, no, 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 this isn't how we'll be purified. I'm the one that purifies. And then he comes through a people that every Jew would go through, any, any devout Jew would go through and recognize that they'd become unclean if they interacted or spent any time around Samaritans. And so this is the area he's, he's making this thing. He chooses to go this way. It seems a little off, and, and what I wanted to do today is I just wanted to focus in on one part of this story, because I believe there's so many things that the Lord can teach us through the text. I would encourage you just to read it over and over and over again this week. And then next week, we're going to talk, there's a lot of truth and a lot of kind of good theology that Jesus gives us that I really want to dig into next week, but I just wanted to start with one aspect of this. And first, we need to understand a little bit about Samaritans. Samaritans are a, a group of people that in 722 BC, the Assyrians conquered northern, northern Judea, and basically ejected those people from Judea and put them all over into other conquered areas and then kind of brought them back. And so what ended up happening is as they were intermingling with these other people, they married and and all these other things. So Jews called the Samaritans half-breeds. They were these people that believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They believed that, but they didn't believe in anything else. And then they had to kind of brought in all other kinds of religion into it with kind of, so it's this watered down Judaism, this watered down understanding of scripture. Well, the animosity didn't sit there. In fact, over time, there's more adversity between each other, up to, up to about 128 BC when the Jews came and destroyed the temple. Now, not the temple in Jerusalem that we're aware of, but the Samaritans believed that the temple was on Mount Gerizim, where they were, kind of in their area, the Sikhar, which is kind of Shechem, or it's kind of in this area right there. They believed that this is where the holy mountain was, not Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, where the Jews were there. And so they started worshiping at this temple, and the Jews were worshiping at this temple, and they both claimed that they were following the God of the Old Testament. And so there's a lot of animosity there. Well, in 128 BC, the Jews came through and destroyed the temple of Mount Gerizim. And that kind of sealed the fate for them to really be enemies. And so this has just been a festering and enemies. And so, so there was much disdain for each other. They didn't operate with each other. It's important for us to understand that because no devout Jew would make an effort to interact with Samaritan. And what we knew in this day is that if you're a Jewish or a Samaritan or a Gentile, it didn't take long for you to notice what you were part of. It was almost physical in some ways too. So you could really easily steer clear of it. This is why they had such a disdain for Samaritans. That's why we get the story of the Good Samaritan where the Jew, the religious leader, wouldn't even say Samaritan. He said the man who gave mercy. They believed immensely difficulty. So it was a shorter path, but Jesus had something else he was trying to do. Culturally, we have a couple other things that are an issue. In this day, it was a very patriarchal society, and in this day, specifically, women weren't to be talked to, especially alone, by another man, especially for someone who was a rabbi. In fact, some rabbis wouldn't even speak to their wives in public out of fear of being misconstrued if it wasn't that they didn't know and so this is a very interesting situation where, where not only is it a Jewish Samaritan thing going on here, cultural ethnic background here, but there's also this, this interaction where he's having a conversation with, with a, a woman in public without her husband and without any other people around. And that's, that's a no, no-go no way. In fact, a lot of them believe because of what happened to Joseph and Potiphar's wife and all that stuff where he, he's claimed that he stole a garment and went there. That's what this kind of came into place like. We don't do this. They really believed we don't do this. And so now you have this other part of cultural thing and what Jesus does is really interesting you have to believe that it is intentional it's on purpose because Jesus is always on purpose he's always doing the father's will but he sends the disciples into town when he gets to the well says go get us some food now that put them in a really hard spot because how are they going to find food food that doesn't make them unclean in a Samaritan town but he sends them away and this well was most likely Jacob's well in this area kind of around there probably about half a mile from town and it was high noon. It was noon. It was the middle of the day, and Jesus sends them away and comes and sets them at his well. The well in the first century would have had a short perimeter wall around it, and they would have had a stone lid over it, probably a tripod of wood over it that you could drop the pail in, a little water trough off the side for animals or livestock to be fed, and Jesus sits himself down right on the well. Now, it's not shaded, most likely, and he's sitting there at noon, at a day when, when they wouldn't do it. In this day, the culture, the women would go and get the water, but they would always do it as kind of a social thing. They would do the trek usually in the morning before it got too hot, and they would bring the water back, and it was kind of a conversation in time like that. In fact, a lot of men, if they are like, I want to find a wife, they would go to the watering hole at some point. They would go to the well and try and find people. This is how we see Rebecca is found for Isaac. This is where it is, this well, this moment. Jesus intentionally places himself on the seat. And the conversation begins, and then she comes out, and she says, okay, she's drawing water. Now, she doesn't know Jesus, but she's aware that he's a Jew. Just physically, he can, she can see it. Again, it's very obvious. But she knows, as well as anyone, that, that the fact that she's coming out to get water from the well at noon when no one else is, that there's something in her life that has ostracized her from community. There's something that, is, that she has done to whatever regard it is. There's something that's happened in her way that means that she's not allowed to go with the other women. It's, she's not allowed to be social. She's not allowed to be a part of it. So she's coming at the hottest hour. And Jesus is wearied from the, from the walk, the trek. John does a really good job through the whole gospel to remind us of both Jesus' humanity but also his deity. How Jesus is God, and how Jesus is human and he's tired. And so he sits on this well. And the conversation begins. He, all he says to her is give me a drink. And we don't know this conjecture as to whether or not she actually got him water at this moment or she withheld for the first question but but most scholars seem to believe that she actually started drawing him water but then asked him this question like why would you why would you a Jew ask me a woman for water? Why would you do that? She's she's baffled and also If you remember, every single morning, every single day when she made that trek, that half-mile-ish trek out to the well, it was a constant reminder, I'm not welcome. I'm not accepted. I've done something wrong. I've failed. Constant reminder. Her walk to the well every single day was a reminder that she didn't have family or friends or community that she's ostracized. So she knew it. She was aware of it. So she came out to the well, and there's this man sitting on the well. So she has to actually interact with him before she can even remove the stone to get the water. Jesus says, give me a water. Give me me a drink. And Jesus just says, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would have given you living water. Now, in this day, it's, it's not hard for us. I know we're in a desert, but we have water by a faucet. In, in this day and, and through all, all of scripture, water had become life, a, 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 an analogy or a synonym for life. Because when, you, when you're in the middle of the desert, you need water. And it was something that they understood, like, oh, life is there. And so, so when Jesus makes this reference to living water, she, because she's a Samaritan, wouldn't have spent any time in, in Isaiah. And she wouldn't remember that Isaiah had promised Israel that the thirsty and hungry could have water and bread that would not cost them money and outsiders would be brought into the fold. She had no idea of that text from Isaiah 55. She wasn't aware of it. He says, living water. Now, another term in the way living water would work is a lot of times that was spring, bubbling water. And every person that day knew that the well was clean water, but it was kind of stagnant still. It was sitting. It was kind of there. But a spring, oh, that was the best water. It was always being filtered. It was always fresh. It was always clean. And so she, she instantly goes and does what Nicodemus did when Jesus was talking to her. She can't think about the heavenly, and she has a conversation on the worldly. And she's like, wait a second. Are you greater than our father Jacob? who had to dig a well here because he couldn't find living water because it didn't make sense. She's like, how are you going to give living water? And she just misses all over like the gift that Jesus says there. She misses it. This is living water. Like, where is this water? I mean, how do you know? I mean, I've lived here my whole life. I've been coming out of this well every day at noon by myself and there's a spring? Well, give me some of that water, right? She's like, I want some of that. If this is really it, okay, great. Then, then where is this water? And Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Now this jogs her mind in a different way. Eternal life now, we're talking about this. The Samaritans taught about this too, and this idea that Christ, the Messiah, would come. And so now she's intrigued. Eternal life and water, this has nothing to do with water. What's, What's happening here? This is crazy. And so she, in a moment, she's like, well, sir, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming out here every single day. Now, the question could be one of two things or multiple things, one of laziness. I just am tired of coming out here at noon, and it's hot, and it's, the water's warm by the time I get back. Like, I want that water. And the other side, because he brought up the word eternal life, she felt the need inside of her. Man, I I'm thirsty and i keep trying to quench his thirst through marriages through through these men through these things at this moment she has no idea that jesus is even aware of this she knows that he's aware that something's off with her because she's out there alone but he's a traveler how could he know anything about her life and she's thirsty interacting with jesus was thirsty she's she's experiencing some safety with him in this moment because she's like first off she's shocked that he's even talking to her let alone that he would even consider drinking off of something that was a samaritan that would make him so unclean yet she's intrigued she says, give me this water so i don't have to come out here to the well again and jesus does what he's done to every single one of us in this room what he'll continue to do to people as he brings people into his kingdom is he instantly goes to the heart of what must be removed so that you stop drinking, trying to fill something else so that the living water can take place in your life. And he says to her, go and grab your husband. Now, it seems like a shocking question, but Jesus had been pushing cultural boundaries at this moment, having a conversation at this point in this length with a woman. So it would have been normal for them to say, hey, where's your husband? Let's have the rest of this conversation. But we know Jesus too well. He knows the heart of everyone way better than we ever will. So how dare we assume these things on people? Jesus is capable of cutting right to the heart. He says, I must remove that which you keep pouring into your heart so that you can be filled with the living water. This must be gone. This is your last roadblock. For Nicodemus, it was he had to be born again. He couldn't rely on his religious system, and he he couldn't do it. He walked away at that moment sad. But this woman's saying, hey, you must stop going to this for water. You get a choice, living water, which will bring a spring up in you or thirsty again. And this woman, she now feels a little bit of, I don't know, fear comes into it. I don't know what her her posture is. Maybe sadness. Maybe she thought she was going to find a quick way or an easy way into this living water with this man because he didn't know what was going on in her life. He wasn't a part of the town that continually reminded her her of her sickness, of her illness, of the fact that she is in sin and wrong because of what she's done with these men. Even if she was a victim of these men, even if this is what happened, at this point she was not culturally accepted. And she realizes in this moment, Jesus all of a sudden knows something drastically different about her. She doesn't know how to respond. She says, well, I don't have a husband, which is truthful. But Jesus does what he does to all of us on a regular basis when we kind of do that half confession thing, right? Nice try. I know everything. I know everything. He says, yeah, you're right. You're right. What you say is true. Good job being honest. Well done. But you've had five husbands. You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, this would have been really hard to stomach. What's interesting to me is Jesus does with her what he's done with all of us, in that moment of our repentance where he's, he's broken into heart, no matter how hard we try to mask that our, that our asking for forgiveness or that our actions were okay, he says, no, 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 I know exactly what you did. I know exactly why you did it. I know the motivation with why you did it, and yet I'm still coming to you. Now come to me. And he has this conversation with her. He says, what are you doing? What's, what's going on? And how, how these things? And she's now, I picture her running through her head going, he's not being mean to me. He's being kind to me. He's gentle. He's not condemning but he knows everything about me, and so she changes from sir to I perceive you to be a prophet. You know more than you should know. You're, I don't know you in town. I haven't seen you in town, and yet you know everything that I've done. You must be a prophet. So then she goes to a question which seems like an evasive question, and it could be, right? She's running from him. Let's, let's instead, of, instead of talking about the heart of things, let's talk about theology. Christians don't do that at all, right? We don't ever hide from our heart. Like, oh, well, let's just go to this scripture instead and not talk about this one because it's just too convicting. She may be doing that, but I think in some ways she's still having this conversation with him. She's still excited. And if you look at her response at this moment, her heart's probably racing. She's saying, wait, wait, you, you, you know, we, we talked about Mount Gerizim and you talk about Mount Moriah and Jesus has this long conversation, which I can't wait to talk about next week. There's some beautiful theology for us to understand in this, some wonderful things for us to understand in this. But she's, she moves on to this conversation and saying, no, 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 like where do we worship and how we do it? And Jesus flat out declares. He says, no, no, I'm telling you. I'm telling you, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman now said, I know that Messiah is coming. And now I wonder if this question was like, is he him? She moves from from prophet to now Messiah. She's kind of going from sir, which can be translated Lord, but it's just a a polite thing to, to prophet to Messiah. I know the Messiah is coming and he'll answer these things almost a non-direct way to say like man what you're saying is is good and and it's, and i want it to be true because i feel like i can be accepted i feel like i'm there and she does this thing she says oh, it must be and she could be still trying to hide from the pain like will he accept me how long she's buying her time saying i don't want the conversation to end if we get back to this husband conversation he might turn his his, his face from me he might treat me like everyone else has treated me he might look at me the same way that every man has looked at me since she asks this question and he says, no, I must thirst." She says, he's coming. He says, I who speak to you am he. And I love what she does. The disciples come back, and I love that they ask a question that every single person tries to ask about Jesus all the time, is what does Jesus need, as if he needed anything? They see him interacting with this woman, like, what, did, what could he need? No, no, it's not his needs he was interested in, it's hers. He drives at home with this wonderful section, we'll be there in two weeks, where he talks about, like, I'm not hungry, I, my, I don't thirst, I've got, I'm filled by something else. Need. And she leaves her watering jug, her livelihood, what she came out there for at noon, probably Thursday at this moment. And she hightails it back to town. She goes to town and she's like, come see the man who told me everything that I did. And I feel like at that moment, every single person at that town was like, uh, yeah, we all know that. Yep, we've all seen that. Sorry, woman, like, we know this about you and this true. But then she says, could he be the Messiah? And whatever they saw in her wasn't the same what they saw when she left for that well. And it was enough to make them run out there. It's the same thing Matthew did when Jesus comes to the tax booth. He says, follow me. Matthew It sold himself, sold his people out for, for occupying Rome. What does he do? He throws a party. Meet Jesus, because I met this guy. She does the same thing. Come out. And you know what happens, guys? It's absolutely beautiful. Many people come to faith, and they say, not just because of her testimony, but because they met Jesus too. Radical transformation happens when relationship with Jesus begins. Really, she's kind of the embodiment of everyone who does evil, hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed, what we talked about in verse chapter 3, verse 20. Because she was exposed. She was brought into the light. And she could have done, like many people will do. Ah, oh, it's too bright. I'm too afraid to be vulnerable. I feel, I feel unprotected. But she didn't. She stayed. And what does it say? She believed. And many believed in the name of Jesus. A woman that had every... Ethnic cultural everything going against her and jesus just went into relationship with her And it transformed her life So what is it for you? Maybe I should say who is it for you? Who's that proverbial samaritan woman that person that you believe they don't deserve it? Is it someone who voted for trump? Someone who voted for biden? There's no way they could know jesus and they don't deserve him As if you're protecting jesus from something (laughs) Are we forgetting what he has done in our own heart? Are we forgetting the atrocities that we are? Do we forget how much grace he has shown us? How dare we withhold the love of Christ from anyone? We have been adopted in, co heirs with Christ. Many of us in this room that raised our hands, we know what we were capable of before Christ, and it was not good. We felt the same thing that the Samaritan woman felt. We felt that moment when Jesus first exposed us, came to us, and it was like, oh man, that hurts. He knows everything about me, and yet he said, I want you. How dare we believe He can't do that for someone? What people group do we hold it against? What nationality, what socioeconomic class? Are we only willing to, to share the gospel with someone that looks like us, that, that feels like us, that seems like us, because that's the easier road is if God can't overcome any of these barriers? about the people that have done just too many atrocities. How dare they? God's grace is limitless. The instant we assume God's grace cannot penetrate the heart of a believer, then we have minimized and made small the God of this world. In fact, the author of Hebrews would tell us that we said that Jesus must be crucified again. Is that what we're saying, that it wasn't enough? How dare we? Could you imagine, just for a moment, could you imagine what it would have been like to be her? And many of you are like, yeah, I remember what that was like in myself. Then don't lose sight of it because if you do, I promise you, you will start having disdain and self-righteousness for people or people groups that you believe you are better than and that is not the way of God's kingdom. This is the story that shows us this. Nicodemus, the religious of religious, couldn't swallow the pill. He couldn't do it. He couldn't give up his religion. He couldn't die again in that moment at least and this woman who had nothing, like the sinner before God beating his chest, saying, I am not worthy to be here. None of us are worthy, but he deems us worthy. None of us are righteous, but he imputes his righteousness on us. He puts his righteousness on us. He clothes us in that. He completes us. He perfects us. He draws us in beyond the veil, into the throne room of Christ, where we can stand holy before God, not based on anything we've done, but because of what he has done, and he has done alone. This should well up a spring of life in your heart and pour out onto all kinds of other people. That's what this living water is. It's going to spill out. You're going to bump into me, and living water is going to come out, not my own sinful self. Because I've been made new, because you've been made new, and there is no person that is too far gone, so how dare we stop praying? Who is it? Is it your family member? Your friend? A co-worker? Someone who just atrociously harmed you? Do you believe by somehow withholding forgiveness from them that you're doing something good for them? No, you're, you're just creating blackness in your own heart. God's grace is limitless. We said last week, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. How dare we walk and operate as if that's true? Or as if that's not true, sorry. Please walk as if it's true. This is what Jesus does. Jesus displayed so much love and such a sense of security that she felt safe with him when her sin was exposed. And I know if you can think back to that moment when he first spoke to you, you felt the same thing. You felt exposed, unworthy, broken, hurting. And God said, no, 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 come here. I want you. You're mine. You're a child. You're adopted. You have every spiritual blessing. You are holy and blameless based on what I have done for you through Christ. He drew you near, and this is what Jesus does in this conversation. And there's so much more for us to take out of this text, and I I promise we'll get there next week because it's just profound and deep what Jesus does about worship and all other kinds of things in this text. But I just didn't want us to lose sight of this. I feel like there's too many of us. I keep hearing too many people say, I don't know how someone could do this and claim Christ, and it just feels like there's a lot of Jesus plus in our culture right now. Just, well, you know, I can't do it. it, Could you imagine if the disciples were there before Jesus had done it? Would they have gotten in the way? Whoa, whoa, Jesus, you know that's a Samaritan woman. Yeah, I I can see that. What are you you doing? Like, you're going to, your reputation at hand. It's like, with who? There's no one out here. Are you sure? And Jesus wasn't only sure. He was doing the Father's will. Just like he was. When he took your heart of stone, removed it, and put a heart of flesh in. He was doing the Father's will in your life. And you now have life, eternal life, a living water where you no longer thirst. And by the way, it's not like you just drink one cup from Jesus and you're good. You continue to drink from Jesus, a continual lifestyle, just drinking from him. And many of us Christians in here, you know what we've done? We believe the lie. Yeah, yeah, I followed Jesus, but then we made mistakes. And we believe the lie that somehow his grace isn't sufficient for those mistakes either. And there's some of you that are here that maybe have never given your life to Christ. And all you think about a Jesus is this guy that's going to shame you and tell you all the things that you're going to do wrong. Oh, don't get me wrong. He will show you the things that you do wrong, but he'll do it in a way that draws you to him. She had every reason to run. And at first, it seems like she does. She leaves her pill and just bails. Like, how did that conversation end? Bye! You know, like, what's, what's going on? Will we see her again? And then moments later, Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples about food, he says, look at the harvest. Look at the harvest. Look what happens when one person enters into relationship with Jesus. It's unbelievable what God can do with one person surrendered to Him. What about in your family, the people that don't believe in Jesus? Maybe the wayward children that have walked away. All it takes is one person in relationship with Jesus. Do you believe that? Jesus was very intentional. There were justifiable cultural reasons for him to not do what he did, but he stepped in relationally. And he did so with, saturated with grace and truth. The band's gonna come up and we're gonna worship here in a second. We're also gonna take communion. But before we get to that, I wanna ask you this question. As I was talking about this, you started thinking about that person that you couldn't believe, or that pe- maybe it's a people group for you. Maybe it is. Maybe you are, Maybe you are un or incapable of loving a specific people, a specific type of person. You meet them and you're like, "Oh, that person reminds me of this type of person." Or you know what? They're just all a bunch of Democrats and liberals or a bunch of conservatives and and, and Republicans. Ah, like you, you kind of speak it as if it's like a bad cold. What, what is it for you because if let me let me just say this really clearly, if there's something. If there's something, hear me on this. This is really important. Because I think if that trip had been decided by the disciples, they probably wouldn't have gone through Samaria. And the the same is for you. If there's a people group, if there's a person, you know what you'll do? Instead of taking the path that makes right the most sense, to go right in front and confront those things, you'll go around. You'll go around. And what if God is saying, no, 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 you don't understand. I have saved you for a people like this. I have saved you to interact with these people. You are going to be the light and the salt that I command of you to be to this person. This person is going to be mine. And you're going to be like, there's no way. Don't be Jonah. Don't think you know who does or doesn't deserve God's grace. How dare we get in the way? So stop going around them. Walk into them. Walk in front of them. Don't confront them. Don't get combative. But Walk into them with the embrace of Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean we need to be void of truth. We'll talk about that next week. You're willing to do that. You're going to take communion. You're going to proclaim what Jesus has done for you. I hope. I hope that you don't forget that He's going to do that for lots of other people. That right now, in your circles of influence, there are people that are children of God that have not come home yet, that have not been adopted yet, and God has graciously invited you to show them who Jesus is, not just in word but in action. And maybe sometimes you'll have to get past your own personal desires. Your own, you'll, have to, you'll have to lose some selfishness or the, some self-righteousness in the moment. And God says, don't worry, I'm, I'm completing you too. I got grace for that as well. And so in a second here, we're gonna take communion together. So uh, there's communion up here, communion in the back. There's also gluten-free at the front door. So I'm gonna pray for us and then I would encourage you guys to go grab your communion and get back to your seats and then we will take communion in just a second. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. God, I um, forgive me for having disdain for certain people. Forgive me for believing that there are people that are too far gone or people that don't, aren't worth my time. God, how selfish and self-righteous of me to think that. God, may we never forget the grace that has been poured out on us we never forget that we are a living water. We have living water in us, welling up a spring of life that is meant to be drank by many. And it's not us, it's Jesus in us. Father, as we move about this week, I pray that we would, instead of having our eyes fixed on ways to avoid people, we'd be willing to look them in the eyes. We'd be willing to have a conversation. We'd be willing to show them who you are forgive us for not believing that your spirit can open someone's heart by just showing them love forgive us for not believing that your spirit can open the heart of someone that has run from you a long time ago god forgive us for believing the lie that you can't do it gosh we are so foolish to think that and so father i pray that we would be a people that even after we remember what you have done for us god that that would just sink into a spot into our heart and our mind that we would always be fixated on you saved us and you will save others And Father, I pray that we would just be willing servants. Here I am, Lord, send me. Whatever that looks like, God. And if there is a person or a people group in our hearts that there's a stain, maybe we've even tried to find ways to justify our anger or hatred towards those people, God, would you please wreak havoc with our hearts? How dare we hold judgment over someone that you sent your son to the cross for? How dare we, operate as some form of legalistic, pharisaical individuals as if we hold the keys to your kingdom or not. It is your work, your kingdom, we are just your children. And Father, for the individuals that are here that have lost sight of you, maybe those that have never surrendered their life to you, God, would they come to you and experience living water? Even when you expose that which they continue to go to to drink and it never satisfies, God, would you remove from them those things and let them draw from the spring of life that is eternal life through Jesus Christ? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to Him and that you may continue.